Hey, podcast listeners, I'm doing a quick intro here. I am about to play you what I just recorded for a YouTube video. I think this is a good discussion. Uh, I weave in a lot of the topics I've been exploring and talk about some future topics that will be happening on the podcast. And I'm also going to try uploading this video to my podcasting hosting platform because they say that they can deliver video to specific podcasting streamers. I believe Spotify is one of them. So uh, I have some interviews booked. I have several booked. Uh, and they will be coming out over the coming weeks and months. And I'm very excited. Things are moving along. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hey, everyone. Today, I want to delve into an article by Benjamin Studebaker, who I interviewed on my podcast recently. This is on an online magazine called The Compact. And the title of this piece is called The Catholic Prophet of Inequality. In this article, Benjamin illuminates the consequences of wealth disparity, not just in contemporary society, but as far back as early Christendom. Uh, the critique unveils how such disparities can hinder the development of virtue, thereby imperiling the health of the entire community. So let's dive into this. Let's read this first paragraph. Christian traditionalists have long lamented the West's spiritual and cultural decline. And who can blame them? The signs of decay are everywhere, from widespread porn addiction to the opioid crisis, fertility decline, to the collapse in church attendance across most of the developed world. But the same conservatives are almost fanatically determined to blinker themselves to the material and economic roots of this malaise. They believe that to link cultural decay to economic conditions is to give in to materialist reductionism, a Marxist sin. This is a really brilliant paragraph. What Studebaker is doing is he's engaging in a pretty interesting backward Marxist critique that by showing how conservatives dunk on Marxists for their overly reductive analysis of our complex lived experience to just the economic and material conditions on the ground, conservatives argue our lives are much richer than that, than just this reductive account that Marxists get into all the time, right? Because this is their frame of their analysis. So instead, conservatives insist that human society is infused with rich moral traditions and dimensions that can just not be reduced to material terms that Marxists have a tendency to do. However, what Studebaker does here is that when traditionalist conservatives turn a blind eye to the role of that material conditions play in the broader sociocultural landscape, they may be unwittingly limiting their understanding of the complexities at play. They tend to emphasize spiritual, moral, and cultural reasons for societal issues, such as a decline in church attendance, which is, was mentioned, right, or an increasing addiction rates. However, Without adequately recognizing the role of economic factors, this can lead to a disconnection between their analysis and the comprehensive, multifaceted nature of these issues. This is why I love the opening paragraph here by Benjamin. He's, he's bringing the, these two sides in, showing that both the conservative and the liberal analysis lens they're using are both inadequate for the complexity of what is really happening here. They're both engaging in the same game and not getting to the root cause of things. So by linking in the 14th century French bishop, Nicolas Oresma, what's interesting here is that Oresma was born in 1320. He explored economic disparities of early Christendom. Oresma was one of the most prominent scholars of the Middle Ages. He was one of an innovative thinker who contributed significantly to various fields, including philosophy, theology, mathematics, physics, economics. This was a time when you did not need to specialize in, in one specific field. It was a different time, right? So in the realm of economics, though, Oresma was perhaps the first scholar to conceptualize and analyze the concept of inflation, and he did that, and he identified how manipulation of the currency by monarchs could lead to reduction in the currency's purchasing power, thereby impoverishing the populace. 
This was done in his work called De Monita. It provided a comprehensive analysis of money, its nature, and its use. Now, Benjamin focuses on this aspect in, of Oresma's work in the uh, Compact Magazine piece, right? So now, as Benjamin points out here, Oresma didn't concern himself exclusively with the politics of the kings. He was also deeply worried about the growing crisis within the Catholic Church. Over the years, massive inequalities opened up within the church. A handful of cardinals possessed enormous wealth, while many rank-and-file priests were penniless. Increasingly, many of these priests adopted the view that poverty was necessary for virtue, challenging the spiritual authority of their wealthier peers. Some of these priests drifted into heresy, denying the authority of the Pope on the grounds that no true leader of the church would acquire property or encourage others to do so. Now, Resma was no heretic. He wasn't even a Franciscan. King Charles V tasked him with translating the works of Aristotle into French. Now, Aristotle had argued that property is a prerequisite for virtue. Now, I don't, I looked, I've read Aristotle's virtues. Now, I got Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics right here. I'm not sure if he ever says owning property is, is necessary for virtue, but he does make the, the argument that you need to have leisure time in order to pursue virtue and become a virtuous person. So you can extrapolate from the idea that in order to have leisure time, you have to have some claims on property so you can have some excess wealth so you don't have to be working yourself day and night. So I can see where Studebaker here is collapsing that down into this sentence here. There's only so much space and time in a day. So virtue could only be developed in a person had time to contemplate the virtues, to think about what it really means to be good. In short, the life of virtue required a measure of property and material security. If the ordinary person were to develop this higher life, it followed that property should be broadly and equitably distributed. It makes a lot of sense. Now, Studebaker goes through the rest of the article showing the, the problem with this idea of wealth inequality in the church and how this undercut its ultimate mission, right? So it's really great. I highly recommend everyone read all this, but I'm going to jump down to the end real quick. Because what he says here at the end is what I want to talk about a little bit more in this short video, which is, he says, progressives in the United States who advocate for cash transfer programs like the earned income tax credit, which I'm a, I'm a fan of, and UBI, I'm also a fan of, overestimate the capacity of market systems to develop citizens. It isn't enough simply to create free time. The market forces that incentivize consumption and melancholic repose need to be curbed for the moral health of the people. This is a very good point. This is actually part of what I'm trying to do here, which is to try to articulate other ways of finding moral virtues that aren't driven by market narratives and aren't driven by purely right narratives. And you'll see if we go to this next section here, meanwhile, most cultural conservatives maintain a blissful ignorance of the nexus between the material order and the spiritual gainsaying how the capitalization of healthcare. Now, gainsaying is to deny, right? how the capitalization of healthcare, housing, and education have led to the capitalization of the family and of the interior life. It's another way of also saying, you could say commodification, which is more of a Marxist term, right? So he's saying here that how citizens derive no meaningful social roles and are alienated from themselves, their kin, and their communities. Now, the communities, families, this is a very traditionally right-wing conception of what matters in our life, right? So this is a beautiful paragraph because he's showing that both the left and the right are collapsing their view of how things are working in our society and not fully grasping the richness 
and not necessarily richness as in goodness, but the complexities that are involved currently in our current lived experiences. Now, you can't say that healthcare, housing, and education as they are today are good for the family. They're not. They're extractive systems. They're not built in a way that are supportive of the families. We are put in a precarious position because of how the capitalization of healthcare. Anyone who uses healthcare in this country cannot come away from it and think that was a great experience. And the same thing with housing. Housing is kept artificially scarce through the market system. Home builders don't want to build enough homes for everyone because then their profit margins will collapse, right? That's the system we have. So now Studebaker is arguing here is that Republicans on the right need to acknowledge this if their goal is our virtues, especially the virtues talked about by Aristotle, which they claim to be a big thing for them currently. If you look at what's happening in Florida with the critical learning test and how they focus on the virtues of Aristotle, but then how they behave in today's modernity is to ignore the actual teachings of Aristotle. But anyways, one thing I want to bring in here, because another book I just finished is a book by, by a professor named Molly Farnett, and I don't have the cover for this book, but it's called Hegel's Social Ethics, Religion, Conflict, and Rituals of Reconciliation. Uh, this is a very good book. She, the reason I like this book is at the end, she provides an actual framework for how you could actually look at this article that we, we are just reading or just, we didn't read the whole article, but if we just, this article we were just discussing and this conflict between left and right and the market system, Molly bases this book off of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, which I actually have right here. It's another book I've got right here. It's an incredible book. She, she works through the concept. She works through several concepts here, but one of the focuses of this book is the idea of the Hegelian dialectic, right? And how she brings up the idea of recognition and reconciliation. So in the context of Studebaker's article here, which is what we're discussing on the economic conditions and moral virtues, we can look and apply this process of Hegelian dialectics through Dr. Farnett's interpretation of it to gain a deeper understanding of the current socio-political environment and its implications for moral virtue. Now, Studebaker's ex exploration of the progressive and conservative blind spots toward political economy viewed through the lens of a Hegelian dialectic helps us recognize the thesis, the progressive and conservative narratives which fail to appreciate the full complexity of political economy's relationship with moral virtues. Now, the antithesis lies in the lived reality of economic inequality and the commodification, or capitalization to use Studebaker's words, of essential aspects of life, healthcare, education, and housing, which obstructs individuals' moral development and engagement in their community. Now, by actively engaging with these conflicting realities, we can begin to create a dialectical synthesis or a reconciliation, to use Farnes words. This isn't about settling for a middle ground, nor dismissing one reality for the other, which is what we do today. This is the problem. We just dismiss the other person's point of view outright. Rather, it involves actively constructing a new understanding that takes into account the intricate interplay between the economic conditions we live in and our moral virtues that we want to practice. So this new understanding would consider how economic prosperity could be aligned with the cultivations of virtues, transcending the dichotomy of material and moral. Here, the commodification of essential aspects of life wouldn't stifle virtue development. Instead, we would seek to establish societal conditions that foster both material well-being and moral growth. In the broader context, 
This dialogue epitomizes the type of recognition and reconciliation that Farneth outlines in Hegel's social ethics. This process offers a potential avenue towards understanding and addressing the issues Studebaker was highlighting, pushing us toward a more comprehensive understanding of the relationship between political economy and virtue, ultimately shaping a society that is both materially prosperous and morally rich. Now, this takes work, though. This is something that Farnett discusses over and over again in this book, and she uses the word active. It's an active engagement with others. You need to have a sense of of openness to other ideas, and you need to work with each other, right? This is the idea of recognition. And then the idea of reconciliation is when you work together to then synthesize a higher understanding of where you started from in this conflict. Because in democracy, it's not even just democracy in life, there will always be conflict. It will never go away. And we need to build the practices in order to continually work together to overcome these conflicts and build a higher understanding so that we can move forward. Now, Farneth also likes to link in this idea of recognition and reconciliation with the idea of that ritual to be to like, and rituals create habits and habits are how we then inform our actions without thinking about them too much. They just happen intrinsically. So she also has another book, Molly Farneth called, called The Politics of Ritual, which I just finished as well. It's how I found the book that we were just talking about because I read this one first. Molly's going to be on the podcast, Reviving Virtue, in about a month and a half, and we're going to discuss this book. But the idea of looking at ritual, of making the idea of recognition and reconciliation a ritual is really powerful to me because these imbue habits, right? Now, this also has a very big, I would say, pragmatic ring to it, right? And it reminds me a lot of John Dewey. Now, John Dewey was a huge fan, not only a huge fan of Hegel, Hegel influenced John Dewey incredibly. When I was thinking about habits, I think of John Dewey because he feverently championed the importance of habits and practices in shaping a democratic society. According to Dewey, these collective practices and habitual behaviors don't just mirror societal norms. They actively shape and influence the ethos of a community. This is really important to understand. And this is why bringing the Hegelian lens to this really helps in the light of the issues raised by Studebaker, Dewey's insight draws attention to the ways in which economic societal conditions impact not just our individual behaviors, but the very habits and practices that are the bedrock of our communities. Economic conditions that do not favor the cultivation of virtues, for instance, might foster habits of selfishness and individualism. I think we're very familiar with those in modern America, as opposed to community building and mutual aid. Now, the act of recognizing these realities and seeking reconciliation, that is, Working through these divergencies to build a synthesized, more encompassing understanding can be viewed as a ritual in itself, a practice that through repeated engagement becomes a cornerstone of communal life. And when I say communal, I don't mean like we're living in a commune somewhere. Yeah, I'm talking about democracy, this country. We're living in a community here. We need to remember this. So the ritual of reconciliation anchored in an understanding of the dialectical process as presented by Farnett through Hegel can therefore be seen as a transforming of our society by habitually engaging in this process. We not only acknowledge and understand the complex interplay of economic conditions and moral virtues, but we also build practices that are responsive to the realities fostering a society that is economically equitable and morally vibrant. It's really important in this and that Farnett discussed, and I'm not going to go into depth here because I want to keep this video as short as I can now, is the idea of accountability, how accountability is brought about, the mechanisms through that. That's very important to all this because it falls apart without accountability. 
Now, the weaving together of these philosophical strands of Aristotle virtue ethics, Hegel's dialectics as interpreted by Farneth, and Dewey's emphasis on habits and practices. It underpins Studebaker's analysis and provides a compelling direction for addressing the issues of our time. Together, they reveal a pathway toward a democratic society that not only prospers economically but flourishes morally, cultivating citizens who are active participants in the communal quest for justice and the good life. This is what it's all about to me. Now, there's a lot of voices out there. Since I started this podcast, which is only a couple months old now, and I only have a few episodes out, but I, I have a feeling this is going to be multiple years long project for me. What I'm discovering is there's a lot of people out there who are working hard on this problem that we have today of talking to each other. And a lot of it is buried in these books that are amazing, but they're also incredibly challenging to read without an academic background. I th one of the struggles I'm having is how to bring these all together in a way that can connect with us, that can create that aha moment. Aha. I get what's happening here. I get why we're having these conflicts. And I get why we need to pay attention to things like virtues and morals. From This is from the left perspective I'm talking right now, because I think a lot of us on the left don't really talk about them or, or are immediately turned off by the idea of morals and virtues, because we attribute those to religious practices. And religion, when that is mentioned for a lot on the left, instantly turns us off. I, I completely relate to that and I understand it, but I think this is something that we need to work on and and create a different conception of what religion means, but what it can, and also what it can teach us and how it can make us better on the left so we can help bridge some of these unbridgeable conflicts that we have right now. So anyways, this is me talking out loud and also working through these ideas and I'm putting them up here on the internet for people to view, you know, and you can, and hopefully start having discussions. But, you know, but to get back to Studebaker here, what he, he's laying out what I like about this and, and I like you now compact magazine from what I can understand is they're trying to, to create a forum where you have people on the left and the right post stuff. And, and they come from very different perspectives because I've read some stuff that kind of turns me off. And then I've read some stuff that I'm like, this is amazing. And I've read some stuff in the middle that I think is a good synthesis of the two. I think Studebaker is doing amazing work here. And I think Studebaker's article is a great, great article that would not be printed in a lot of places because it criticizes both the left and the right. And the way it starts, the article starts out with this critique of modernity, which I think is a fair critique, personally. What I'm trying to get at here is that I'm trying to find that, that tie-in between the two. How do we bring these two sides together to speak? And I really think it's through creating practices and, and habits and through the lens of Hegel, but also, but more for me, through the lens of pragmatism and what we can learn from the American pragmatist movement. I think there's a lot of amazing work that has already been done and a lot of analysis that has already been done that can teach us, that can inform us today. And then we can bring our experiences from today into that and to expand it, to make it more meaningful and applicable to our current needs and our current problems. That's all I got for you today. Thanks for checking in. I have a couple interviews coming up and there'll be more podcasts uh, and there'll be more of these kind of short ones of me just talking about what I'm reading. And, and I'm just glad you're here and you're watching. Hopefully I have uh, engaged in some topics here that, that have made you think a little bit. Thanks again. Bye-bye.